So good to be able to go through the Word of God together. And uh, this morning, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and open your Bible to Acts chapter 20. And uh, we're going to pick up our study here. And uh, the rest of the book of Acts, by the way, as we make our way kind of closer toward the end, there's 28 chapters. We're in chapter 20. We're making our way through. And uh, the rest of the book, uh, as it's been dealing with the life and ministry of Paul, he is obviously the central person in view here uh, in in the course of of really the latter half of the book of Acts. But here in the rest of the book, it's going to be, you know, it'll focus on um, his desire to get to Jerusalem and ultimately uh, his his travels as he makes his way uh, to Rome. And so there's a lot of interesting things going on between now and when he ultimately uh, will end up in Rome, and so we study these things as we make our way through these remaining chapters. So in chapter 20, we're going to pick it up right here in verse 1. Now, after the uproar had ceased, or the uproar that had taken place uh, at the end of chapter 19, where um, where a riot had broken out, and Paul was in the middle of it, and and ultimately, um, uh, 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 after this ruckus is dismissed, we pick it up right after this. So in verse 1, it says, After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he went to go to Macedonia. And when he'd gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And so Paul, as he's making his way um, throughout his ministry journey, we sort of get this glimpse into kind of the heart and mindset of Paul. He is exhorting, encouraging, building up, investing in these believers, many of whom are believers that he has um, uh, and primarily in focus, uh, most likely, are these churches that he has been planting and has been involved in establishing in the previous chapters that we've looked at. And so as he is making his way through this region, he's encouraging them some more. And uh, in verse 3, after he spent three months there, uh, when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, uh, he decided to return through Macedonia. And so it appears that Paul was going to go back to Syria, likely Antioch, the church that sent him. And, uh, and however, a plot was discovered uh, by those non-believing Jews, uh, not, not Messianic Jews, uh, but those who did not believe and were trying to stop uh, Paul's ministry. Now, we should not be surprised to see that there are things like plots against Paul. And likewise, believers, by and large, uh, as we serve the Lord, should not... Um, be surprised or caught off guard by the fact that the enemy, and of course, you know, we, we might be prone to say the enemy is these unbelieving Jews. Really, the enemy behind them is the one who's motivating them, them to do this. And this, of course, is the enemy of our souls, the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air, uh, Satan, uh, who is, uh, you know, it's funny, when we say that, you know, the devil is trying to trip up the work that we're doing for Jesus or something, um, it's probably safe to say that people like you and I, the devil himself is probably not coming after us and trying to upend our work uh, or, or you know, take a personal interest in you and I as individuals. He's probably got some lesser minion taking care of that. Um, but when it comes to Paul, uh, it is entirely possible that Satan himself is actually trying to uh, drive and, and motivate people to trip up his work. But spiritual warfare being what it is, we should not be surprised that there is spiritual warfare involved in the work that we do for the Lord, whatever we're doing for him. Um, you know, you might think that, well, I'm just setting up chairs in church or something. Well, don't think that that's something that the enemy is happy about. You know, you're facilitating people hearing the word of God or worshiping or whatever the case might be. Uh, whatever f- form of ministry you're doing, 
You know, again, you might be doing some of the practical nuts and bolts kinds of things and you feel like it's no big deal. It is a big deal. You might be uh, an evangelist out on the road or, or speaking uh, in, in, in the midst of a gathering of people trying to share the gospel. Um, certainly there's spiritual warfare on every end of, uh, in, in every pocket and avenue of the work that we do. Uh, and so we should know that. You know, we ought not be ignorant of the devil's devices. As a matter of fact, this is why Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we are to suit up with the whole armor of God. Uh, because this is, as Warren Wiersbe said, not really so much a playground, but the Christian life is a battleground. And the enemy is always looking to rear his head. And here with Paul, it's obviously uh, very true as well. And so as he spent three months there, he wanted to make his way back to Syria. But instead, he decides to return through Macedonia. In other words, take a different route entirely. Uh, because of this plot against him. Now, of course, taking this other route will produce different fruit. The enemy never really ultimately prevails against the plans and purposes of God, which must be insanely frustrating for him. And we don't want to get, um, you know, sort of cocky about that, but we do have the confidence in knowing that whatever Satan seeks to do to undermine the work of God, ultimately God turns it around and uses it to accomplish his purposes. And in this particular case, during the period of time that Paul is moving into, the period of time we're going to read over the next handful of verses, um, it is generally presumed that a number of things take place during this stretch. Uh, For starters, it is during this time that Paul is taking up a collection from the Gentile churches that he has planted and has been involved in, in, in fortifying. He's taking up a collection from those believers, not for himself, but for the believers in Jerusalem who are struggling and having a hard time. Uh, this offering, uh, this collection is mentioned in uh, both First and Second Corinthians. Uh, it's mentioned in uh, Romans 15. Uh, and it, it is this wonderful gesture from the Gentiles to the Jewish believers, among whom there was still some conflict. And so Paul, um, in this different route that he ends up taking turns out uh, likely if this is if this is part of that and it's generally presumed it is that he actually is used by the lord to bring together these two sort of factions within the the christian body and and to try and sort of smooth things out between them uh, it's also during this time that he would end up writing first and second corinthians and also the book of romans and so uh, the book of romans which we are going to start uh, very very soon our look at that book And so this is really, uh, you know, you would read through this passage and see a bunch of names in a bunch of places, and you might just sort of move through it thinking, oh, it's just some kind of, you know, background information of things that are happening. But actually, there's quite a bit going on here. And so, um, you know, if you read uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapters 8 and 9, that speaks of the collection that's being taken of. When you uh, read the salutations in, uh, in these letters and in Romans, uh, you'll see some of these names, as well as in, uh, you know, some of the people we'll read about here appear in uh, other places like um, in service to the Colossian church or something like that. And so um, there's actually more here than you might immediately think as we're just sort of making our way through it. And so I kind of mentioned that as we read through it, that this would be in the back of our minds. So uh, he returns through Macedonia in verse four. And when he was, uh, and he was accompanied, I should say, by Sopater, or Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and also by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. More specifically, Trophimus, we find out, is actually uh, an Ephesian. And so, uh, which may have something to do with his, uh, the way that he was able to help gather up some of the Ephesian elders that we'll read about later in chapter 20. But in any case, uh, some of these names we're familiar with, some were not so much. I will mention that uh, Aristarchus, 
is actually a name that is rooted in the word aristocracy, which may indicate that Aristarchus was actually of high birth. He may be of someone who descended from aristocracy or sort of the upper crust of his, uh, uh, an upper crust kind of social class in his uh, in his uh, sphere in that. And then on the sort of the other end of the spectrum, Secundus is actually presumed to be not so much a proper name as much as kind of a moniker or a, a label that he had sort of uh, been given as a slave. Typically in that part of the world, when uh, somebody was the primary slave or the chief among the slaves, he was called primus. But the next in line, or the next sort of lieutenant to that one, if you will, I'm just sort of using the word lieutenant, they wouldn't have used the word lieutenant, but sort of the next one, the next one that might take a position of, you know, having some responsibility over other slaves would be the second, or secundus, would be derived potentially from that. Um, and I, you know, so this may be what's in view with these names, uh, secundus, possibly, of course, we don't know this, and I'm not being dogmatic about it. But it's entirely possible that he maintained that name, sort of in reference to his uh, position of humility as a Christian, you know, ultimately Christ being the primary. Um, I don't know. It'll be interesting. You know, I, I, I have to admit, I, I, I think, I don't often think about it, but when I read through passages like this, and I'm reminded of all these names to which we don't really have a face or much written about, um, I, I always wonder when we get to heaven and we meet some of these Uh, saints that we read about in scripture who we just sort of quickly move by and never really hear about again, or in some cases we hear a little bit, but some of these we don't really ever hear again. Um, I wonder what their stories were, and I I wonder if in heaven around the table as we're enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb, or as we spend eternity and we get to know each other and stuff, or however that works, you know, if, if we know just as we're known, does that mean we have all total immediate knowledge of everybody, or do we, who knows, I don't know, but But as we sort of encounter and engage with other believers and begin to hear their stories and learn more about them, I wonder how rich and and even more of the picture of the New Testament gets filled in as we sort of put stories to the names that we see here. Just something to think about. I I just, I find myself kind of mulling those things over uh, when I come across passages like this. Um, again, Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians. Uh, of course, we know Paul wrote two letters to the Thessalonian church, and what we know about that body was that in a very brief time with them, we read about them in Acts 17, in a very brief time that Paul spends, three Sabbaths, in that time, he not only planted a church, laid its foundations, but t- taught them all kinds of things about their faith, including things regarding to eschatology. And so this is a uh, and they're 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 seen as a faithful church, a strong church, uh, and and uh, and such. And and these are two people that are from that church. Um, Gaius, who we read about earlier uh, in chapter nineteen, he was actually one of those uh, during the course of some of the uproar was dragged out. Um, of course, Timothy, we know as Paul's sort of protege, who would ultimately end up pastoring in uh, uh, among the, uh, the the churches in Ephesus. Um, a lot of responsibility given to him. Tychicus, we read about in a number of places, Ephesians, Colossians, he's called a faithful minister, a fellow bond slave. Um, again, we don't read much about Tychicus, but what we do read about Tychicus leaves a very, very good taste in our mouth. Uh, and then Trophimus, again, of the Ephesians. He's mentioned later as the Ephesian. Um, so, but verse 5, But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. And we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and we came to them at Troas within five days, and then we stayed seven days. 
On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began to teach them, intending to leave the next day. And he prolonged his message, or he went on with his teaching, essentially, is what's being said there, until midnight. Now, it's an interesting detail. He was planning to leave the next day, and so he kept teaching till about midnight. Um, knowing that he was leaving, and without any real knowledge that he would see them again, he invests in them all night long. He pours into them and teaches and such. Um, you know, on the one hand, Paul found himself kind of revisiting some of the churches he had planted during this period, but that did not mean he would get a chance to see all of the believers that he had met before or any of the believers he was with now. He might never see them again. Uh, Later in Acts chapter 20, as he is about to depart, he recognizes that in his ultimate journey to Rome, he's not going to see these Ephesian elders again. And so he meets with them and and pours into them as well. I think there's a lot to be said about taking advantage of the opportunities we're given. Not to put a guilt trip if we miss an opportunity or, or we maybe freeze or we are afraid to say something, but let me just plant the seed though, that we never really know uh, where life is going to take us. God knows that, and as, as, as children of his, as servants of his, we never know what he has in store for us down the road. And so I, I think it's, it's, it's worth considering that in each of these encounters we have, that we sort of leave it all on the field. You know, nothing left on the table. We pour ourselves into each opportunity in an encounter because we don't know if we're going to have another shot at this or another time back again. Uh, you know, it's funny, in life, um, you know, there are sort of these moments that you realize are poignant and you're thinking, wow, what if I never see this person again? You know, what? I don't want to leave anything unsaid. Well, ministry and, and just even the Christian life in general, which is in some sense by definition ministry in itself, uh, I, think, I, th- I think it's good to sort of have in our mindset as we view our lives as as, as tools in the service of our, of, our, uh, of our Savior, that we consider each moment as being worthy of pouring ourselves fully into it. Paul certainly was doing that in this case. He th- planned to leave the next day, so he just preached until he had nothing left, essentially. And so he goes until midnight. He's pouring into them all night long. And um, uh, in chapter, or in verse 8, I should say, uh, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. We, Luke again, seems to be seems to have joined uh, in the uh, in the activities here again. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor, and was picked up dead. This is not funny, obviously, but if you're familiar with the passage, you know that it has a happy ending. But it's a little hard as a preacher who has seen his share of people nap jerking, you know, in, in, the, in the seats um, to not fully appreciate this. And I myself uh, have, have done a little bit of nodding in the middle of a message. Uh, not that I was preaching. Uh, I could bore myself to tears, but, but in, in just, you know, in the course of, of going to church, a long message, maybe I catch myself nodding in that. I've seen people nodding when I've preached. You might be nodding off right now. Um, but here, I, I've never had anyone nod off and fall out the window and die like Eutychus. And so Paul's sort of got, got one up on most of us that way. 
But that's how long Paul was preaching. And so there's lots of lamps, which again is an interesting detail. There's a lot of light in the room so that, you know, keep people awake and Paul can maybe see the copies of the scriptures he might be reading from uh, just to make sure it's not too dark where people fall asleep. Um, and uh, and so an, a good faith effort was made to make sure that the conditions were such where people could be attentive. Um, as a side note, um, I don't know if you've ever been to what's called like an afterglow service or even just a prayer meeting in the evening um, or, or even sometimes uh, just some gathering of the saints where the lights come down really low because we sort of want to just create this atmosphere of, you know, um, you know, maybe just no distractions or something. Something about bringing the lights down is just sort of implied to make it sort of a, a more appropriate condition to be in prayer or something like that. Um, I would say that that may turn out to be counterproductive for many. Uh, again, someone like myself, my wife is convinced I have narcolepsy, uh, which is this idea that you just sort of fall asleep randomly. And so um, for those of us who have a hard time staying awake at night, and uh, when the lights all of a sudden come down low and then we're going to have a prayer meeting or something, you might consider maybe keeping the lights on a little bit because you, you might be losing a few people and then all of a sudden, you know, suddenly this is not quite what you're hoping for. So in this particular case, even with the lights on, Eutychus falls out the window. He just could not stay awake until midnight. And he falls out from the third floor window and he was picked up dead. But verse 10, but Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled for his life is in him. And when he had gone back up, he had broken the bread and, and had eaten. He talked with them a long, uh, a long while until daybreak and then left. And they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. So uh, Paul goes down from the third floor. Eutychus falls out the window, falls to the ground, and is dead. Uh, we don't know. I mean, the fall killed him, but did he have a broken neck? Did he just, you know, what, what, whatever, you know, whatever the impact literally of that fall had, he was dead. And Paul went down, races down three flights of stairs, and he lays down on this this young man and prays for him. And the Lord tells him that he's going to be okay. Now we don't know if he woke up right then and was healed. Or if Paul just prayed for him and the Lord gave him this, this, just this assurance that the boy would be okay. But at the end of the passage, we see that the boy is okay. And so, um, you know, most of us, if somebody falls out the window or some, of course, most like this ever happens to us. But, you know, if somebody passes under, you know, uh, and, and our natural tendency in that, uh, in the moment of passing in an accident like this would be just to mourn and to weep and to wonder why, oh God, and and that, which of course is natural and normal. A lot of times we would not necessarily have the confidence uh, that if we pray over the person that has just passed, that they might come back. Uh, we do in the New Testament see this happen, though, both here with Eutychus and Paul's own case when he was stoned outside of Jerusalem. The disciples got around him and prayed for him, and he came back. Um, it's presumed that that's the point that Paul refers to when he speaks to himself in the third person and talks about this one that went to the third heaven. Um, let me suggest that, you know, without um, without taking on a presumptuous, presumptuous attitude or something, maybe there is something too, praying over somebody when something tragic like this happens before we just sort of assume that that's the end of the story. Maybe there, Maybe there is something like this that God would do. Again, I, that's, a, that's a difficult thing to talk about because, you know, the first thing that I conjure up in my mind when I think of a scenario like that is, you know, a young child dies tragically and, 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 and we lay on this child and pray for this child to come back and then nothing happens. We don't always presume God's going to bring a healing, but 
On the other hand, clearly sometimes he does. And so just something to think about, something to pray about. And, uh, and, and in that moment, I guess maybe it would just be uh, right to say this, that in a moment where you find yourself in a circumstance where something like this happens, maybe the first thing to do is to ask the Lord, is this a moment that you want to work? Father, just give me the confidence to walk up and pray and lay hands if this is something you want me to do. Help my fear not to in, involve the, be involved here, but just to do as you would have me do. Who knows if God might have something uh, really, really astounding to do in that moment. So interesting, interesting passage. Again, there's a little bit more there that, that you don't necessarily see right off the bat. But when you look at some of the other passages we talked about, we begin to see the, the picture kind of getting rounded out. Um, and we do a little homework looking at the history of that time and such. But it's a worthwhile pursuit to do that, and so I encourage you. But I'm going to stop there for today. And then the next time we pick it up in Acts chapter 20, we're going to... Uh, well, you know what? Actually, I'm going to finish the next couple of verses because really this... Uh, uh, this will take us up to the next section. Let's go ahead and take uh, verse 13 in the next few. But we going ahead in the ship, again, Luke with them, uh, they set sail for Assos, attending uh, from there to take Paul on board. And uh, for so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board uh, there and came to Mytilene. Sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we crossed over to Samos. And the day following, we came to Miletus. Now, this is important because this becomes the place where Paul calls the Ephesian elders to come to meet him, where he'll spend time with them. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia or Asia Minor, which is where we're, uh, what we refer to when we say Asia in, in, in the New Testament. For he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And so uh, Paul still had this desire to be in Jerusalem for the holy days. Um, for at least one, maybe a couple of reasons, or maybe more, but at least a couple of reasons. Number one, because on Pentecost, as well as a couple of the other feasts, Passover and such, uh, you would have to, if you were an able-bodied Jewish male, you had to be in Jerusalem for these feasts. And so there was a, a huge influx of people during that time, which, of course, from Paul's perspective, gave opportunity, especially when it came to trying to reach his kinsmen according to the flesh, which he had such a deep burden for, we see in Romans 9, that if it were possible, he'd be willing to sacrifice his own salvation if it ensured theirs. That's so deep was his love for his people. And so to go to Jerusalem during a high feast day was a really important opportunity for Paul. Secondly, um, if you've done any study on the feast days of Israel and their uh, their sort of um, you know uh, um, uh, their 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 elements of them that point to Christ, um, it's not surprising that Paul or others uh, who were Christians at that time and were still in sort of this early era of the Christian church, uh, many believers were still sort of practicing the feasts and those kinds of things. Uh, Paul would, in, in the letter to the Colossians, make sure that believers knew they weren't to be judged by whether or not they kept the feasts and those things, because they were, as Paul would say in, the, in that letter, a shadow of things to come. But the real substance is Christ. Nonetheless, that didn't mean that that uh, Messianic Jews or you know uh, bl uh, Jewish believers in in Jesus as the Messiah didn't still practice the feasts, didn't still celebrate the feasts. Um, they often did. Uh, uh, and this raised interesting, um, you know, uh, interesting and, and I think uh, meaningful teaching opportunities to sort of connect the dots between these feasts and how they pointed toward the finished work of Christ. 
And so, um, so Paul, wanting to go to Jerusalem, at least as an opportunity to, to bring the gospel, but also it may very well have been that he saw the value in, in still celebrating these feasts and, and marking them. And so that being said, he's in Miletus as he is wanting to go to Jerusalem. And so it is, again, in Miletus that he will ultimately uh, call the Ephesian elders to come to himself and that he will uh, invest in them, now recognizing that he will not see them again after this. And so that being said, we're going to stop there this time. And uh, it's kind of like in, uh, is it uh, in Philippians, I think, where Paul says, finally, uh, and then goes on for another chapter, you know, so uh, we, we went on a little bit longer too. But anyway, thanks for watching. And uh, we're uh, going to continue to make our way through the book of Acts. Again, we are going to look to start the book of Romans very, very soon. Um, we uh, also on Sunday mornings are going through the book of Revelation. Uh, that is a lot of fun to be going through that as a church. And we invite you to join us on our live stream for that. And then if you want to join us on Wednesday nights, we're making our way currently on our midweek study through the book of Jude. A wonderful, uh, a very brief letter, but a very, very rich letter as well. So we hope you'll join us for that. So, but uh, thanks for watching and may the Lord bless and keep you, make his face shine upon you and give you peace uh, forever. And Father, we do pray that, that Lord, you would just help us as we walk with you to experience your peace, that we would come to know your grace more fully. Uh, that we would uh, experience your hand of blessing upon our lives, uh, Lord, at, at, in the most important way, in knowing you better and better. We thank you for your word and that you've given it to us that we might come to know you uh, more fully and that our relationship with you would grow more deeply. And we pray that, Father, you would be with us and guide, us, guide our steps as we make our way through this life, ultimately, to that day when we see you face to face. And we thank you for the confidence that we have in knowing in that day we'll see you face to face and not have to be ashamed or afraid because Jesus has taken our sins away. And so, Father, we praise you for that open door, that, uh, that barrierless entry uh, into, into the, 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 the rich, deep, meaningful relationship and even literally into your presence one day. Thank you, Father. Undeserved as it is, yet so freely given to us, we just simply say thank you. And we praise you and bless you and ask you to bless our times together as we go through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.